Ben said earlier, we've been thinking uh, about pictures that God has given to us to describe the church. We've been thinking about the church as family. Then we thought about the church as body. Uh, last week we were thinking about the church being light. And we've still got two other pictures to look at. The church as building and the church as bride. But today, I want to slide, slide in a cheeky extra talk <laughs> that's not a picture of the church, but all of the pictures we've already looked at and the ones we're, already, we're, we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, all, to be sure, depend on this great truth, and it's this. The church is Christ's. It's not mine. It's not yours. <laughs> the church belongs to Jesus. In order to underline this great truth, I want to think with you this afternoon about something that I'm not sure I've heard preached on very often. Uh, and I, I mean that very seriously. I, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I know I don't look old enough. Um, and I think I could count on one hand the number of times I've heard a sermon on the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. Jesus died, rose again, and then returned to heaven. I'm not, I'm not sure... I've heard many sermons preached on that. So, I want to direct our thoughts this afternoon, just in particular, to the last three verses that Claire read to us at the very end of Luke's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you had the page open there. We're just going to look at these last three verses. And what a brilliant climax Luke gives to us in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. The whole of the New Testament, I think, acknowledges and tells us about and celebrates the ascension of Jesus. But Luke is the only writer who describes it physically. And it's so important for Luke that he actually does it twice. Here at the end of Luke's Gospel, he is very brief in his description, and that's because at the beginning of the book of Acts, we'll come to that in a minute, he gives a more expanded version of this same scene. So he's the only writer that describes the ascension physically, and it's so important to him that he does it twice. It might help us um, to see what Luke's doing here with a simple graphic. Um, Luke was a doctor, and he wrote two books in the New Testament. The first is his gospel, which is helpfully named after him. So that's very obvious. Luke wrote Luke's gospel. And in this first volume, Luke is describing what we might call the earthly ministry of Jesus. What Jesus did, what Jesus said and taught, and that story in the first vol volume culminates, of course, 
in Jesus going to Jerusalem where he's betrayed and crucified. And after being placed in a garden tomb, guarded by Roman soldiers, he powerfully rises from the dead. And over a period of about six weeks, he appears to his friends. One of those occasions is described for us here at the end of Luke's Gospel that Claire read to us. And Luke's point is here, it really is Jesus and he really is real. In verse 42, Jesus eats with them and invites them to touch him and to prove that he's not some kind of ghost or spectre. And at the end of this conversation, it seems that Jesus led them outside and they see him go. They see him go. As he's taken from them, into heaven, no doubt smiling and blessing them as he leaves. Jesus returns to heaven in order to be crowned and exalted as the risen king. I, I, I've been thinking about this and I, I only properly realized recently that this amazing climax to Luke's gospel is where Luke has been heading all along. I'd never noticed this before, but as early as chapter 9, Luke refers to this moment of departure. In chapter 9, he writes, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, they all speak about Jesus resolutely being determined to go to the cross. But it's Luke who stretches our vision beyond the cross, even through the grave, and to this ultimate enthronement of the Lord Jesus. Now, when Luke then comes to write his second volume, the book of Acts, I don't know why we say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It'd be easier if it was Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, because Luke also wrote Acts, and it seems like John slipped his book in the middle of the, of the two volumes. But Luke wrote Acts as well, and he also begins with this exact same scene of the ascension. And I, I think the point that Luke's making here is that Jesus is still at work in human history, but now his ministry is not being done by being physically present in one location, but by reigning over all things from his cosmic throne in heaven. Luke's gospel talks about the ministry of Jesus on earth. The book of Acts is all about Jesus' ministry continuing from his throne in heaven. One writer, I think, helpfully puts it this way. Imagine if Jesus had chosen Jerusalem as his seat or throne. Localized, he would have deprived every other place of his presence. But with the ascension of Christ, all restrictions have been removed and he is our ever-present Christ. So for Luke, the ascension 
and exaltation of Jesus is both the fitting climax to his gospel and the stunning foundation of the spirit-empowered era of the church. And it's this enthronement of Jesus that is the pivot around which Luke writes his two volumes. Now, all that said, I have a question for you. And the question is this. Why the excitement and joy? Luke's brief account here is very, very striking indeed because in our normal experience, separation does not usually spell joy. Think about that. Luke always seems, maybe it's because he's a doctor, he always seems when he's writing to pick up on human emotions and he kind of gets under the skin of how people are feeling. Maybe it's the empathy, I don't know. But he tells us here in verse 52, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They saw Jesus leave them and yet instead of crying with anguish or begging him not to go, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, my wife Jane is here today. And I can remember when we were dating as students about 100 years ago. Um, I would sometimes travel from university in Birmingham up to Liverpool to spend the weekend with Jane and her family in Liverpool. It was always a wrench to leave. And sometimes, much to Jane's parents' disappointment, it was even tempting to miss the odd lecture on a Monday morning. I can catch up later to stay for an extra day. It could never have been said that I ever returned to Birmingham with great joy. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare, some of you young ones might be studying this at school, I don't know, Shakespeare has Juliet crying to Romeo, parting is what? Such sweet sorrow. And so, what of these disciples? They've lived with Jesus. They've loved Jesus for three years. Why are they not devastated? Remember, too, that up to this point, everything within them through the Gospels has reacted against it all ending like this. Do you remember that Peter even told Jesus off when Jesus told them that he was going to the cross to die and Peter took him to one side and said, never, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And the whole group were confused and sad when Jesus said strange things like, in a little while, you will see me no more. And even stranger, it's for your good that I'm going away. They, they, they didn't know what he was talking about. What has changed here for them to be so giddy with excitement that they're almost skipping back down the road to Jerusalem? They're unable to stop laughing and smiling. Jesus has gone, but think about this line, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What Luke is telling us, I think, is that they're beginning to grasp 
that their Lord and friend and saviour is now to be crowned king of the cosmos. In this moment, the dusty feet of this despised Galilean peasant teacher leapfrog over Pontius Pilate, over King Herod, over Augustus Caesar himself, their friend, their representative, their candidate is now exalted to the highest throne. Someone wiser than me once said that it's a tricky business to try and work out which episode in the life of Jesus is the most important. For example, the gospel wouldn't exist without the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, becoming human. The incarnation is mind-boggling. And then, of course, we rightly highlight the cross as being crucially important. Jesus dying in the place of sinners, taking their condemnation on his innocent shoulders so that we can be forgiven and set free. But even then, all of Christ's atoning work would be ineffective without the resurrection, powerfully vindicating him and declaring him to be the Son of God. All, you, you can't pick one of those things and say, this thing is the most important, can you? They all interlock and overlap. But this event, this event, the ascension of Jesus is actually the pinnacle that the whole Bible narrative is building towards. The exaltation and crowning of Jesus as king of kings. You'll realize, I hope, that it's not that Jesus wasn't infinitely glorious before all this. He is the eternal son of God. But if it's possible for infinite glory to be even more infinite... Here he displays his glory in coming down to earth so humbly, enduring death, conquering it. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that it's because of this that the Father gives him a new name. The name that is above every other name. And it's a human name. Jesus. Because it signifies the humanity that he acquired and then took back to heaven in a glorified body. He's not more glorious than he was, but we can see it far more now than we ever would have done. Centuries before Jesus was born, many of the Jewish uh, people were taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire a few hundred years before Christ. And one of these exiles was a famous prophet called Daniel. You might have heard of Daniel in his lion's den. And Daniel records for us in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament a bizarre dream that he had 
And in this dream, he sees four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then an unidentified ferocious beast. And he later tells us that these beasts in his dream represented successive earthly empires. These empires that rise and fall and consume people. But during this vision, Daniel also gets a sort of parallel glimpse of what is go what, what's going on in heaven while all of this turbulent history is going on on the earth. And so Daniel, in his dream, he sees the throne of God, transcendent, high above the world's chaos. God himself is beautifully and powerfully described as the Ancient of Days. Makes me think of like Gandalf. He's described as the Ancient of Days, seated on his unshakable, invincible throne. This Ancient of Days is all pure white and blazing fire, and there are literally thousands bowed down to him. But in this scene, it's portrayed as a kind of court, and Daniel tells us that books are opened, and you can sense the anticipation you get the sense that decisions are about to be made. Judgments are going to be handed down. And as everyone waits for these awesome proceedings to begin, the door opens. Everyone turns around to see what the interruption is. And after all these weird and symbolic beasts representing the rising and falling of powerful empires, what we see is a man who walks smiling right into this scene. This majestic throne room in heaven. Here is how Daniel describes that man's arrival. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Who is this man? who comes right into the presence of this heavenly courtroom as a mighty and worthy human king. Who is this one who stands and reigns in glory above all the raging of successive brutal earthly kingdoms? This is like a film with two different camera angles. What we see at the end of Luke is Jesus leaving what we see in Daniel is Jesus arriving. What a beautiful pair of camera angles that is. The surprising joy of the disciples on this day was not shaped by the grief of separation, but by their new awareness of where Jesus is going. And in all this, of course, was the promise of power as Jesus would shortly send the Spirit of God to empower their mission. There's the promise of Christ's presence 
as Jesus reassures them that he is supernaturally with them until the end of the age. And there's the prospect of his glorious return one day to consummate this kingdom of light. Friends, I I want to make a plea that we take the ascension and exhortation of Jesus seriously. And that the joy that they knew because of it would rise in our hearts too. And that that joy would be the glowing fuel of our worship and of our mission. Many of us perhaps feel weary. Maybe, maybe, like me, you are secretly afraid when there are those who suggest that we Christians are somehow on the wrong side of history and we feel overwhelmed by all the things we feel the need to be and to do. Dearly beloved church, let this scene encourage your heart. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, what, what is so compelling here is that this was a particular kind of joy that somehow didn't twist them into being completely unbearable or obnoxious. It didn't manifest itself in them being triumphalist or arrogant on the one hand, and neither did it make them exclusive and inward-looking on the other hand. The book of Acts is such a dynamic blend of thankfulness and resilience and outward-looking generosity and hope, and it's all rooted in joy because Jesus died and rose again and is exalted as king to an invincible and universal rule. This is the story of the church. We can see it in the book of Acts, and we can see it in what one writer calls the hosts of creative, bold, caring people throughout history whose only motivating force was the risen Christ in their midst. There's there's so much to nourish our hearts, I think, in this, but let me just unpack this a little by highlighting um, what I feel sure would be three important components of their joy. Okay? What was their joy shaped like? What did it consist of? And so here's number one. I think I think they skipped to Jerusalem with a smile on their face because they had a deep thankfulness for grace 
that was continually being received. Surely the first thing present here is an awareness that everything they've experienced is all of grace. Think about this. After all, the ascent of Jesus upwards, first of all, requires his descent <laughs> downwards, doesn't it? And what that means is it isn't that they have somehow climbed up to God, but that God has climbed down the ladder and come to them in the person of his incarnate son, Jesus. They haven't earned anything. They have been recipients of God's gracious generosity and kindness. These people are ordinary people with all of their sinful flaws, as the Gospels make so clear to us. And yet Jesus, the King, has come for them. And he is unswervingly and unconquerably for them. I love that story that we've been hearing over the last few weeks from one of the Queen's protection officers. His name is Richard Griffin. And he, was, he, he knew the Queen for a long time and he was with the Queen as she was walking around Balmoral when they were approached by a couple of American tourists who were out hiking who didn't recognise the Queen. She was wearing a coat and a headscarf, you can picture it. And one of them asked the Queen if she had a house nearby. And the Queen said, yes, I've got a house in London, but I've also got a house just over there, and I've been coming here for a long time. And these people said to her, how long have you been coming? She said, oh, for more than 80 years I've been coming. And you can, this guy's cogs are going, and he said to the Queen, if you've been coming here for more than 80 years, you surely must have met the Queen. <laughs> and as quick as a flash, the Queen replies, well, I haven't, but Richard here meets her quite regularly. <laughs> and so they turn to him and ask him, what's the Queen like? And he knew the Queen and could pull her leg. And he said, well, she can be a bit cantankerous at times, but generally she's very nice. And so they ask the Queen to take a photograph of them with Richard. <laughs> they had absolutely no idea that she was a Queen. And then they swapped the camera and they did get a picture of them with the Queen. And as they walk away, completely oblivious, the Queen said to Richard, I, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when they show that picture to their friends in the States. And they go, that is the Queen, mate. <laughs> Part of the joy here is that these disciples now realise who it is they're talking to. They're, they're not oblivious to who Jesus is. They now realise that the king has been to visit them and that he loves them and that he's given his life for them. I said thankfulness for grace continually being received very deliberately, because this is not a one-time special offer. This is an entrance for them into a completely new life, isn't it? Of daily dependence upon God. 
we've been working through the Lord's Prayer over the summer months, haven't we? And we've been reminded this is the same Jesus who taught them to pray, our Father in heaven. And these friends of Jesus, is not, they've, they've witnessed the cross. They've received forgiveness of sins. They've experienced the peace of reconciliation with God. Soon they're going to receive the promised spirit who will mediate Christ's presence to them and who will transform their hearts and empower their mission. One of the disciples who was there on this day was called John and he could later say, many years later, from his lived experience, listen to this, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. I want you to notice too that how Luke actually describes this moment of departure is very precious. Look again with me at verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. The final act of Jesus on earth is to lift his hands over his friends and bless them. Tell me this, what expression did Jesus have on his face as he does that? Luke doesn't tell us. More than this, you get the sense that there's no rush here. Verse 51 says, while he was blessing them, he left them. That implies, at the very least, a few significant moments of transition, doesn't it? Jesus is not giving them a quick one-line goodbye blessing here so that he can wash his hands of them and get out of there. While he was blessing them, this feels like a more lingering, sweet, compassionate and deliberate blessing. And I think we can sense, I'm sure, the eye contact, the smile, and the fact, get this, that their last memory of Jesus is of him with his arms outstretched, smiling in blessing. He has loved them. He does love them. And he will always love them. What an ocean of kindness and compassion there is in him. No wonder they are filled with joy that throbs with thankfulness for grace continually being received. Now, secondly, they were thankful, but theirs was a joy that I want to suggest was also incredibly tough. So here's number two. Humble realism. There's maybe a better phrase than that, but hopefully you'll get the gist of what I mean by that. I want to say this. On the one hand, Christianity is not escapism. They, these people didn't walk back to Jerusalem assuming that because Jesus was king, everything would go well. After all, they've just seen Jesus himself crucified. Agony. 
Many of these people would later die for their faith in Jesus. James, the brother of John, was beheaded within 10 years of this day. The opposition that Jesus warned them about did not imply that Jesus was absent or dethroned. But their joy here, what that means is that their joy here is not hollow or plastic or superficial or shallow, but it has a robust and steely resilience to it. Peter, another one who was there on this day, could later write to other Christians who were facing persecution, and he said to them, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. And I think that's an echo of Jesus' own realistic warnings at the end of John 16. Jesus said to this group, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I wrote down in brackets here, be of good courage, be of good cheer, cheer up. I have overcome the world, which he has. (laughs) The difficulties would be real. But they had now seen Jesus smash through the cul-de-sac of death itself and ascend to take his throne. On the other hand, Christianity ought never to be arrogant or triumphalist. It it strikes me as very compelling that the fact that Jesus is king gives them a confidence. But it's never twisted into prideful superiority, is it? When this world wins, it tends to gloat. (laughs) Isn't that true? But somehow these believers had a joy that was not smug, but just totally humble. They never seemed too concerned about being ordinary or small. They're alert to the possibility of difficulties and disappointments. When trouble arose, they didn't draw wrong conclusions that somehow God had abandoned them or didn't love them. They didn't succumb to bitterness when things appear to go wrong, as if their faithful service was meant to insulate them against that kind of problem. Their joy was real, but their eyes were wide open because they learned from the master who had already walked the same path. This group would also be tempted with power and the need to control Again and again, even as we are so often, even in this scene, when Luke describes it in Acts chapter 1, more expansively, you can hear the disciples asking, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And the subtext of that is, is it time yet for us to take our places at the top table with you and rule over everyone else? Jesus says no. Jesus instills this kind of, it's not for you to know. Your job is to go and witness to your new life and to who I am. Following King Jesus in this world will mean living with tensions 
and enduring difficulties and coping sometimes with unresolved questions. So these, these disciples here are full of joy that is deeply thankful, but also realistic about the challenges ahead. And their joy led them to humble service and gave them a resilience when they faced difficulties. But finally, they were also optimistic. Here's number three, and then we're done. Um, I think their joy had something in it here of a robust optimism that fuels their generosity in mission. So, in, in Acts chapter 1, we haven't got time to read both, but you know now that Luke wrote both. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that the angels had to give them a nudge to leave. They just stood there mesmerized by what they'd just seen until their silent contemplation was broken by angels who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who had been taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go. The exaltation of Christ and the hope of his return inspires their courageous obedience. First of all, in waiting, Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Spirit, and then in going out on the mission Christ had given them. You know the end of Matthew's Gospel? Jesus uses the same logic there, doesn't he? When he says to these men, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Because he's king, he sends his people into the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For this group, there's no isolationism or battening down the hatches. There's no exclusivity or ghetto mentality. Because King Jesus has come for them, they are compelled to go and find others. We haven't had time to dig into the earlier verses there. Read them at home. Luke tells us that they knew the peace of Christ. In verse 36, they were absolutely rooted in the scriptures. In verse 44, 45 and 46, and then he sends them out on mission. In verse 47, to tell people of Jesus, to preach repentance and forgiveness in his name. So, here's the threefold shape of their joy because of the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. I want to put it like this. They had a song on their lips. They had steel in their spines. And they had hope in their hearts. That is the shape of their joy. Friends, the church is Christ. This is what he's like. And this is what his church ought to look like. They're not miserable. Neither are they naive. 
and they're not selfish because of Jesus, King Jesus. They're filled with joy that is thankful, strong, and generous. Sometimes they suffered greatly and felt that they were on the wrong side of history. But they were faithful and patient and they held things loosely because they knew they were loved by the king. Some, some of you are facing or will face difficult situations. May each of you know today the uplifted hands of the Lord Jesus that are raised to bless and not condemn. And may his good rule and reign stimulate your joy. Thankfulness, resilience and generosity as we serve him, loving one another and reaching out to a lost world. Will you join me in praying um, that this particular joy and these three specific traits will, will increasingly mark our lives? Let's bow and we'll pray and then we're going to sing uh, to close our time together. Father, we do thank you for your amazing word and we thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have sent him to be our saviour and our king. We pray that you would help us to capture some of the joy that that means. And that you would help us to be thankful, resilient and generous. Father, we pray that these traits would be increasingly the DNA of our church family here. We thank you that the church is your sons. The church is Christ's. We bless you in his powerful and good name. Amen.